This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the show that brings together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes. Today, we'll be reflecting on the federal market over the last year and looking forward to some topics that will be top of mind in the year ahead. Our guests today are Maria Roque, the owner of M.A. Roque Consulting, former federal deputy CIO and past American Council for Technology president. Welcome back to the show, Maria. Oh, thank you, Dave. So happy to be here with you. It is great to have you back. We are also joined by Robert Shea, a partner at Guidehouse, former associate director for the Office of Management and Budget and past chair of the board of the National Academy of Public Administration. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Thank you, Dave. Now I I, I see this as payback for you co-hosting with me a few weeks ago. Bedheads was an awesome experience. I loved it and would be. I will come back anytime you want me to. We've got so much to cover. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Robert, let's start with you and a look at the current fiscal situation for government. Ballooning debt over the last decade that will encroach on federal discretionary spending is creating a dire situation and a divided Congress makes it perhaps less likely that we'll make a dent in that problem. What's the financial outlook look like for government in the year ahead? Yeah, you know, as we sit here, Congress is grappling with uh, the spending they'll agree to for FY 2023. Um, And it looks pretty good that they'll get an agreement and agencies won't have to suffer under a year-long continuing resolution. But there's still going to be a big deficit in that uh, bill. um, And there's no sense that those deficits are going to diminish going forward. We've got a situation right now where our debt is almost 100% of GDP, something that has been warned about, but we hoped to avoid. But it looks like we're going to get over that bad hump. The real problem, one of the real recent problems is inflation. Um, Interest on the national debt has uh, crept up and up as interest rates have gotten high. And that just puts us in this continuously unsustainable uh, fiscal situation. This is going to come home to roost at some point. And so you would hope Congress and the administration would take some responsible steps to bring a little bit more austerity to spending. I think, unfortunately, a divided Congress means coming to agreement on something that would address these challenges is unlikely. I find find it hard to believe they'll come to agreement on anything, uh, much less something that gets us back on a fiscally responsible path. So I hate to start the meeting on a down note, Dave, but that's how I see things. And, and, you know, it's only logical to say that, you know, as as interest payments balloon, eventually they're going to eat into discretionary spending. And and we're going to see cuts there. And You know, if you had to do your crystal ball, what areas of discretionary spending are you most concerned about? Well, you know, we should remind people that discretionary spending is a smaller and smaller part of the pie and that you won't get your way out of this challenge by cutting discretionary spending. It's the continued growth and inflation has an an impact here of mandatory programs, Um, the social welfare programs that grow in, on a formulaic basis 
year after year. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all of those are structurally built um, to go broke, unfortunately. And so, uh, you know, we've talked about reforms for many, many years. We've tinkered at the edges, but significant reform is going to be required if we're going to slow the growth of those programs and bring some sort of fiscal sanity back back to Washington. And of course, it doesn't help that we so seldom pass appropriations and we spend each fiscal year limping along on continuing resolutions. Maria, why don't you help our audience understand some of the challenges that government leaders face living in a world of continuing resolutions, a place that you spent many of your years in government (laughs) having to deal with, and the impact on things like new starts and strategic planning. Yeah, you know, Dave, you you said many years. Watch how many years has it been that we've we've had to operate in a CR, right? Well over a decade. I lost count now, <laughs> the number of years. But it is it's really difficult because you know the CFOs come back and say, well, you have to keep your spending levels at the prior years. Well, when in reality, as a CIO, I'm getting dribbles of money, right? I have a contract that needs to be renewed. That's all I get to pay for. I have something else that needs to be renewed. I get no no dollars to execute on anything new and anything that can get put off gets put off. And it's really difficult uh, when you try to plan, right? When I look at what's coming up for the fiscal year, there are there could be a dozen things or more or big projects that I want to work on. And many of those are customer facing, right? For the American public, for the benefit of the public. And as you try to work through that in a CR, you can't do the things you want to do. And you end up in this endless do loop of, you know, barely keeping the lights on because so often that, you know, the spending around IT is looked at as a as a big cash bucket, right? What's the first thing the CFOs and others are going to come after? Well, you're spending too much money on technology. Well, technology is the enabler for the business and when you're looking at cybersecurity and protecting the organization and the data and all and delivering services and delivering the mission, technology is an integral part of that. And if you start cutting into the technology and saying during a CR, well, you can't spend those dollars, you're directly impacting the mission. And you have to continue to communicate that because even in a CR with limited dollars, well, we're going to cut the technology dollars. Well, guess what? That results in not delivering the mission. And you have to communicate that, even get a little bit of that money for some of your contract renewals rather than pushing things off. Um, It really, the CRs really put a damper on any new starts. So if you have a plan that say you need to replace a system or do some technology work and you know it will pay big dividends in the long run, not having those dollars for anything new All you're doing is keeping the lights on. And that is not beneficial to anybody because you get yourself into this this situation where you need to do upgrades. You have to apply patches. You need to do that kind of work to continue to enhance what you're doing. And you you just can't do it. And it's extremely difficult. And when you get your money in the third quarter or even the beginning of the fourth quarter, you have to hurry up and spend that money. And you have to really focus in on what those priorities are and make very fast decision on where those dollars are going to go. It's just, it's really difficult all around. And it's not just technology spend, it's hiring that gets impacted, right? Vacancies don't get filled. Um, so it's not just, 
you know, technology and all of that, but it's also the workforce because some of those dollars are for payroll. Innovation is one of the buzzwords of the year, and you both have been big champions for bringing innovation to government. Maria, what? let's stick with you for a minute, and, and then we'll turn to Robert. What are some of the necessary steps to be successful at introducing innovative solutions in government and having them actually stick? You know, I, I always said you gotta, it, when you're trying to do new things, uh, burn the bridges behind you, right? So there's no <laughs> going back. <laughs> so you need to do a little bit of that. But, you know, when you're, when you're introducing changes in innovation, you know, there's many steps to that, right? One is, do you have the funding? Can you do some kind of proof of concept, right? That requires a good partnership with your chief acquisition officer, your chief procurement officer, right? But as you're introducing the innovation, you have to communicate why something new or something different is necessary for the organization and how it's going to advance the mission of the organization. So it's not just innovation for innovation's sake, but you know, being able to kick the tires on pilots and proofs of concept to flesh something out and say, hey, we, we tried this at a small scale. Now we want to move it broadly to the, to the bigger government. Rather than doing some big bang project for the whole organization, really bringing in the new technology a little bit at a time um, and trying smaller scale and then scaling up over time. And a big piece of this is communication with your with your customers, right? So your employees within the organization understand what you're doing. So as you're scaling up, there's a lot of change management, as we all know that needs to take place because people are stuck in their ways often and don't want to change. And once you start introducing the tools, communicate, communicate, over-communicate and tell them, here's what's coming, here's what we're going to do. But introducing that innovation is really, you know, a partnership from the beginning on doing some small pilots, working on the acquisition side to really drive those pilots. And then as you scale up and roll out, communicating throughout the entire organization, not just leadership to say, hey, we're going to do something cool, but the rest of the organization and the entire staff that says, here's what we're doing and here's how it's going to impact you and here's why it's a good thing. Robert, on the theme of innovation and looking particularly from the perspective of industry, what what would industry like to see from government to better allow companies to bring their best ideas from the commercial market to government? Yeah, you know, I'd like to do like some sentence diagrams of Maria's answer to that question, because the nuggets from there really do answer this question. Be clear what you're trying to accomplish and prove that it's the innovation you're advancing is actually achieving it. And and the change management associated with adoption is really critical. And it's not a check the box exercise. This has got to be sustained over time. But more specifically to your question about what industry would expect We've seen a softening, I think, of the relationship between industry and their uh, agency customers to the extent that culture change can be sustained um, would go a long way. Robert, you made a, a great point about that on the partnerships with the industry, right? And how critical that is. And then from your viewpoint on the acquisition side, you know, being able to support what the agency wants to do. And I think you make a great point there. My friend Steve Kelman wrote a piece recently on the sustained performance of DHS's Procurement Innovation Lab. I think he's surprised that it has been sustained over successive administrations. And he's got some good examples of 
of acquisitions, innovative acquisition strategies that have proved effective at the Department of Homeland Security. But I also, I don't want to be too flip here, but there's a risk Dave made inviting me on. The Senate passed the Clear and Concise Contracting Act to make sure that um, government's documents, including acquisition documents, are written, written clearly and concisely. We, we, you should have like a, close the night before Christmas type reading of some acquisition documents, Dave. And uh, you would see the challenge almost immediately that a lot of acquisitions are written in a way that's just inaccessible um, to someone who's looking for plain language, a clear recitation of what the government's trying to acquire, what it's trying to accomplish. I'm not sure we can get that bill enacted in time, but the plain language movement has been out there, and I think just just better, better clearer writing would help us all. You know, We're going to leave it there for a moment. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wintergren. On today's episode, we're reflecting back on 2020 and looking ahead to 2023 with two outstanding federal leaders. Robert Shea is the partner at Guidehouse and former associate director for the Office of Management and Budget. And Maria Rote is the owner of M.A. Rote Consulting and the former federal deputy CIO. Where we left off, we were talking about innovation and Robert was offering some advice about how industry can help bring innovation to government. And I'd like to sort of follow that thread because the vast technology budget ends up mostly in the hands of the private sector. Acquisition becomes a key topic around which innovation can either flourish or not. So I wonder, Robert, if you want to sort of pile on to what you were talking about before the break and offer some thoughts around acquisition changes in the year ahead that you would like to see to help foster a culture of innovation in government. You know, I, I, I don't know that I have a specific laundry list of reforms I'd like to see other than sustained progress on the list of reforms that have been proposed. The NDAA should have, have should uh, pick away at this, I think. Um, and I, I'd like to see this as a potential area for bipartisan agreement in the Congress. Is that too much to hope for? Um, I'd like to see uh, reports coming from some of these outfits like the DHS uh, Procurement Innovation Lab to see what lessons have we learned there that can be expanded across the the executive branch. Very good. How about you, Maria? Yeah, you know, um, uh, Robert mentioned previously about the concise language and some of those things. When when I know when I tried to to do some things very simply. Um, Here's what I want from industry. Here's a very simple thing I need. Um, you know, with the contracts and acquisition folks having me to expand all of that, including, you know, when you go to a GSA contract, you know, oftentimes you need like four documents. That's all pre-competed. You need like four things and you can issue a contract in about a day or so. Um, and, and, you know, I think having contracts people that really understand that you don't have to repair an entire RFP for a GSA contract that's already been pre-competed will go a long way. So those are some of the improvements that I'd like to see is, you know, allowing for that very simple language and understanding things like the GSA contract where you, I actually only have to prepare like four simple documents. This is the thing I need. 
and and you know let industry take a look at that and then come back to me on it without having to prepare all of it. So I think there's some opportunities for improvements there to really accelerate innovation when the process exists already. Sometimes it's the people that need to change um, that that really put in the barriers. So Maria has hit on the crux of the problem, um, which is. Uh, it affects every facet of government and industry, for that matter, which is workforce, recruiting and retaining the talent you need. And in this case, innovative, out-of-the-box thinking, uh, deep understanding of the process so that you can mold it to the needs of your client rather than the process. Let's move on to some people-related issues. Robert, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and justice are all issues that have been front and center for the current administration. Um, a lot of work being done, but also a lot of work still proposed to be done. What's, what's your sense on the ambitiousness of DEIA initiatives and any headwinds those initiatives might face with a new Republican Congress? Yeah, it's a question um, I've given a lot of thought to, Dave. The pandemic highlighted inequity as if we needed more examples, but it really did show that unnecessarily that the uh, pandemic and the economic consequences severely impacted un- traditionally underserved communities to a much greater degree than others. Um, and so the Biden administration has launched a series of initiatives designed to take a whole of government approach to ensure not only internal diversity and equity in agencies, but that in the way they administer their programs, they are reaching and achieving important outcomes on behalf of traditionally underserved communities. That's a tough concept for folks to really grasp. The the scale of what they're trying to accomplish is really tough for people to grapple with. It's even harder to accomplish. But I applaud the initiatives. I think the evidence-based policymaking agenda marries nicely with it because you can really dig and figure out what's working best to achieve these communities and what do we need to do better. But as to the headwinds you mentioned, there's a real threat that the culture wars impact what I think is an important focus on uh, correcting a wrong to fixing things that we know to be broken. I worry that there'll, there'll be congressional resistance to some of these ambitious efforts you already see it in the uh, defense context. People afraid woke culture is diminishing our national security posture. I don't think it does. It certainly doesn't have to. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that will, I think, slow progress in that arena. Maria, how about you? Workforce challenges for the year ahead? What's what's on your mind? Um, you know, I hitting on a couple of things Robert said, talking about data, the importance of data. I think continuing to educate the workforce on how to use data better, um, not just for you know DEIA, but for the evidence-based decision-making, continuing to use that and understanding how key data is to all the decisions across the federal government and how it can inform how services are being delivered, right? There's a lot of activity, um, a big focus by this administration on customer experience, public facing services, all of those things. But when you start peeling it back, it's how we're using the data, right? Whether it's one agency or cross agency across the federal government. 
So I think the continual education of the workforce around data and understanding how you can use data to improve not only what the workforce is doing, but what the entire agency is doing and how that feeds in there. So I think there's a lot of opportunities around the workforce. There's also opportunities on continuing to hire the right skill sets. Um, the digital core that's coming in, uh, that came in last year, right? The GS9s, the technical uh, folks that were hired. I think that's great, but you got to have the pipeline for those folks. You know, they came in as GS9s, you know, some of the college graduates and others continuing to feed that pipeline as they continue to grow. Because the, the federal government, when you really look at the mission space, is a tremendous um an exciting place to work, but people don't always understand that. But to feed that workforce, continue to educate the workforce and bring in um, a new generation or a younger generation and bring people in, you know, even if they're mid-career and wanting to do something else, being able to do that and, and you know, those experts in data and cybersecurity, technology, uh, acquisition, whatever that expertise is, being able to tap into that workforce and, and keep people for time, even though they may come and go from industry, but continue to educate. So I think there's going to continue to be opportunities around the workforce. We talk about it all the time, but I still think that there is a big opportunity when you look at the um, technology and cybersecurity workforce to take a holistic look across the entire federal enterprise and not just agency by agency and how you can build in those rotational programs, how you can bring in younger people, how you can bring in the next generation and really look at it from a technology workforce, a strategic plan, if you will, for the entire technology, cybersecurity data workforce and look at the federal government as one enterprise, not just agency by agency. I think there's a huge opportunity there, Dave. Excellent. Robert, this is not fair to say. We've got about a million minute left in this segment. Talk to us about customer experience, because I know it's a subject you're really passionate about. But, but you know, I think we're about a year past the executive order. There's been a lot of momentum. What's some things around customer experience that you're excited about or you think we need to be paying attention to in the year ahead? Look, connecting major life events across the federal ecosystem um, is, I think, uh, has enormous potential to transform the relationship the federal government has with citizens. I don't think we can say we've got demonstrable uh, results, but we've got demonstrable progress. Um, and so setting that foundation does give me great hope that that'll see major results soon. Uh, Maria mentioned data though, that in order for all that to happen, the relationship between the federal, state, and local governments as far as data sharing has got to change. We've got to really um, improve the way state and local governments collect and report and use data. And the federal government needs to understand that they need to empower uh, that kind of data infrastructure at the state and local level. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Maria Rote, owner of M.A. Rote Consulting, and Robert Shea, partner at GuideHouse. I'm Dave Wendergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wendergren, and as we welcome in the new year, we're looking at the federal government market with two outstanding leaders, 
Maria Rode is the owner of Emmy Rode Consulting, former federal deputy CIO and past American Council for Technology president. Robert Shea is a partner at Guidehouse, former associate director for the Office of Management and Budget and past chair of the board for the National Academy of Public Administration. As we went to break, we were talking a little bit about customer experience and I'd be remiss if I didn't like say rip from the headlines. Representative Ro Khanna had recently announced that he wants legislation to create federal chief design officers. What do you think about that, Maria? Uh, yeah, you know, when I first uh, heard about some of this, my my first thought was, "Wow, do we need another CXO?" <laughs> that was really that really was my first thought. And with the chief design officer, when you think about the role and what the intent is around that, you really got to look at the overlap with the other chiefs. There's a huge proliferation of of CXOs across the entire federal government. And what's the overlap in the roles and responsibilities, right? Industry, you know, chief design officers, they're taking on roles that really were maybe chief marketing officer, chief product officer, chief brand officer, some of those type roles. And really, you know, responsible for overseeing like the design and innovation aspects of, of companies, products, and services. Well, how does that translate to the federal government when, and in fact, we always don't do a good job marketing, right? You've got agencies like NASA and others that are great at outreach and those kind of things. But how does the role of that chief design officer fit across the federal government when the the chief design officer may be developing, you know, new business models or improving experience for customers, right? You know, making sure there's good design and ownership and and all of those things. So where does all of that fit into the big ecosystem of chief performance officers, chief, you know, all the CX initiatives and, and all of those pieces? So I think looking at it from a holistic standpoint, I, as an agency, uh, it really needs a hard look at where the overlaps are, where the gaps are, because you're going to have people stepping on each other's toes. And what's the real driver and the outcome? What's the intent for that chief design officer? Is it really the marketing piece? Is it the bigger product design? Is it customer engagement? Really looking at that big service across the organization, as well as how it intersects with other departments and agencies. So I really think about that chief design officer you know, if they're going to create new products and services, that's great. But where does that fit into the big ecosystem? So I think a lot of thought needs to be put into it, not just to say we need a chief design officer. Well, great. What's the intent? Rob, no, you, you've done a lot with the sort of double-edged sword of establishing chiefs. What's your thought on this? Yeah. Having had a hand in establishing a number of the chiefs, I feel a little at risk here. But and And at the risk of repeating what Maria said, which she said better than I could, we need to take a hard look at ensuring existing chiefs have a clear set of responsibilities um, and are adequately resourced and coordinated with their other chiefs before creating additional ones. I do think this proliferation is having the opposite effect of what assigning a chief is, which is to bring focus to a problem. If everything is a focus, then nothing is a focus. It is a challenge. It's great to bring attention to important initiatives, human-centered design, the power of customer experience. But but you're right, chiefs that operate in vacuums that aren't aligned with one another can create more 
discrepancies and divisions of efforts than unity of purpose for sure. Robert, let's switch to some management issues and let's talk a little bit about like the oversight agenda. As you look forward to the year, you know, we've had some changes. The House is going to flip to Republican. What's the focus of the oversight lens going to look like for the administration going forward in the year ahead? And what are the implications for that for government agencies more broadly? So I know you look forward to it with as much anticipation as I do, but we're just a matter of weeks, months away from GAO's release of its biennial high-risk list. Um, This is a list of what GAO sees as those areas of the executive branch most at risk of waste, fraud, abuse, or mismanagement. Um, I'm being a little flippant, but... uh, I do think it sets up a good potential agenda for the new Congress. These are the biggest management challenges the government faces, many of which are ripe for reform. We've talked about acquisition and workforce management, just uh, among a couple of those. I fear, though, that Congress will focus its oversight lens instead of on some of these more significant, substantial management challenges on more partisan political uh, issues. And that really does a disservice for what we really need, which is a good partnership between executive branch and Congress on, you know, focusing on fixing those things we know to be most broken. Um, Speaking of oversight, you know, we have a gotcha culture so often. And and it's so much more important when we focus on outcomes and measuring the progress of our plans. The 15th edition of the Patara Scorecard was just released as we're recording this episode. Grades are up a little bit across the board. Um, ACT-IAC recently published its report on enhancing the Patara Scorecard. The report contained a number of proposed changes to the scorecard to ensure its continued relevancy and also to stay abreast of the pace of technology. We'll start with you, Maria, and then maybe if we have time, we'll go to Robert. If not, we'll come back after break. But, but you know, talk a little bit about you've had to live with the scorecard for a long time Talk about like the scorecard going forward and and what you'd like to continue to see in terms of progress to make that relevant and valuable to agencies. Uh, You know, the FATAR scorecard, uh, I was always a supporter of that because it it held not just the CIOs accountable, but the agency heads accountable. And the best piece of the FATAR scorecard is when it takes a, a long view, right? Um, and it gives the agency three, four, five years to do a thing, right? You've seen time and time again some of the categories, whether it's, you know, the software management or others, where you you know that it's going to take agencies three or four years to do something, and it takes the long view. And to the extent that the uh, scorecard continues to take that view, it holds the agencies accountable, Right. There are, you know, consistently twice a year, there's hearings, um, the scorecard comes out, but making sure that it's not just the CIO that's paying attention to it, that there's meat behind it that the agency head is paying attention to, right? Because the agency head is ultimately accountable and to make things in the FATARA scorecard work and to make them happen requires a partnership of the CIO and the CFO oftentimes the Chico, the chief acquisition officer, and others in the organization. That's how you're successful in the scorecard. And often when people look at it, they see the CIOs testifying um, on the Hill, but it's really that partnership 
that gets the the agency to an A or to a B or to a C plus, when you have budget cuts, when you have funding cuts, you're going to see grades stagnate or maybe even go fall behind because the resources aren't being put in place to continuity to build on where the agency needs to go year after year after year. And that's where the agencies take a hit. And the FATARA scorecard keeps the those long-term initiatives front and center. So as it evolves, those categories, you know, I provided a number of, you know, inputs and suggestions on, on for the long-term. And, you know, this is not just the Hill driving it, but where is OMB in this in supporting some of those long-term strategic goals, not just looking year after year. So I think the Batar scorecard is important because it keeps many of those long-term things um, and activities front and center, strategic and long-term to really, it's, it's a carrier you're trying to move. You're not moving a little rowboat where you can turn on a dime. You're moving a carrier and some of these things take time. And, and this is really, you know, with the ebb and flow of dollars, you can still keep your eye on the ball for four years out or five years out so that you can do sustained continuous improvement, which will reflect in being accountable and will show up in the scorecard. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Maria Rowe, owner of MA Rowe Consulting, and Robert Shea, partner at Guidehouse. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wenergren, and on today's episode, we're reflecting back on 2022 and looking ahead to 2023 with our outstanding guests, longtime leaders in the federal community, Maria Rote and Robert Shea. When we went to break, we were talking a little bit about the Fataris scorecard. And Robert, I'm wondering, is he, what do you think the appetite on the Hill will be for continued use of the scorecard, tools like the scorecard? And do you think there'll be any potential appetite for changes to the scorecard in the new Congress? Yeah, and, and you know, when we I've talked earlier about my skepticism about bipartisanship in oversight. I think this actually is an exception. This is an area that's that's seen bipartisan uh, support uh, in the past, and I think that will continue. There's appetite for tweaking the scorecard to make sure that we don't lock in in a compliance mentality, check the box mentality, to the extent we can continue to make this real show examples of where this has driven uh, what we had hoped, which was more effective implementation of technology that's actually achieving the intended result. I do think it'll continue and that we should shine a light on it because it really does show that um, despite uh, some of the partisan rhetoric, um, government can work in, in a lot of areas. There is no doubt that the things that we measure are the things that we focus our time and attention on. One of the other big stories over the past year was, of course, the Technology Modernization Fund, which after several years of small investments had a huge infusion of cash. And so, Maria, I'm wondering, what do you think? How did the Technology Modernization Fund doing and what should we be looking for in 2023? Yeah, you know, the TMF got got that huge amount of money, right? A billion dollars for agencies to really accelerate, right? Uh, and have that multi-year funding to accelerate some of their technology and improvements. And you saw some really big awards, right? $130 million for one of GSA projects. And you've seen some others. 
historically, you've seen successes, right? Department of Labor, some of the work that they're doing, USDA and some of the others had really good successes on some of the smaller amounts of money that they got. This year with the billion dollars, you've seen a big cash outlay, tens of millions of dollars, not just 5 million or 6 or 10 million, tens of millions of dollars. And I think in 2023, there's going to be a huge focus and a big spotlight on delivery of those funds, right? Some of the agencies got that funding, you know, six months ago, eight months ago. Are they delivering? And this is where the oversight and the governance comes in. Are the agencies delivering? What's been improved? You know, did some of the old technology go away? Where was the cost saving around it? The intent of the TMF was to accelerate, allow for those multi-year investments and those incremental deliveries. And boy, in 2023, there better be a reflection of those incremental deliveries from the agencies, not, well, we're going to come back and tell you in four years when we're done with the project. It's got to be quarterly, reporting to the TMF and showing those successes. And the reason for that is, the TMF is not a slush fund. A lot of people looked at it and said, ah, this is going to be a slush fund. Money's going to go out. And the board has to be accountable for that money and making sure that there's delivery. That delivery will reflect that it's not a slush fund, right? Again, like I said, there's already been successes, but I think in 2023 with the TMF, agencies are going to need to be, start showing improvements, sustained improvements, whether it's around cybersecurity or some of the services and products where they got $100 million or $75 million, some of those big dollar projects, boy, they better deliver. Robert, you have been a longtime student of the art of financing agency initiatives. I wonder your, your thoughts about the use of the TMF and going forward, the future of funding sources like that versus the establishment of working capital funds in other ways to help keep the innovation agenda moving forward. Yeah, Maria's right. Look, IT has been starved for investment of some of these long-term modernization projects. The TMF was a device to get around having to have an annual appropriation. The theory being that those investments would pay back to the fund. If they don't pay that money back, it will be um, revealed as the budget gimmick that it was. Even so, if those investments aren't paid back, if those investments can show some of the results that Maria suggested. I think it, we can call it a success um, because Patara, TMF, those are intended to um, sort of get at some of the systemic challenges we've had implementing large IT projects in the past. And if we show some of those successes, then I think this gimmick, this device ought to be sustained. Working capital funds are fine. There's, uh, other examples uh, of where you can uh, get around having to have a regular appropriation, but those are probably even harder than, well, they are harder than the construct of reimbursement under the technology modernization fund. While we're on the subject of technology near and dear to the hearts of many of our those in our audience, Maria, what are the top tech issues for the year ahead that are going to be top of mind for federal agencies? You know, I think it's going to be, you know, continual improvement. Um, some of those older legacy systems, agencies are making a huge amount of progress getting rid of some of those, right? You saw last year, CBP got rid of their last mainframe and with the help of the TMF fund, by the way. <laughs> um, but but there are other systems that, that need some work. And some of those are very big systems. And I think that's going to continue to be a challenge. 
But at the same time, if you tie that into, so there's a bill out there, right? Rokana, I believe, with the quantum and cyber and security bill that's out there that that's um, when you look at quantum and the ability, you know, to break encryption and those methodologies, and then you start looking at the federal government and some of the older systems, right? Some of the, even the federal workforce systems, right? The payroll and all those backend systems that the government has, there is no way, unless you started two years ago, that you're going to be able to protect those systems when even in parallel quantum computing is is going to be nipping at the heels of the federal government and the world, right? Being able to uh, break through those encryption mechanisms. So the agencies have to start now if they haven't started already for some of those older systems. There's a lot of new things out there. There's been a lot of improvements, but I think the challenge is in this current fiscal environment, how you start picking apart some of those bigger systems with the end game in mind, knowing that you have to do this, you have to protect the data, you have to encrypt the data, and knowing that there's going to be bills coming down the line, right? That quantum bill that's being proposed, that's up on the hill, that agencies are going to have to meet this because otherwise you're on a collision course of, you know, uh, we've got these old systems and yet we've got all these new requirements, right? Nothing new there that you got new requirements. (laughs) I've lived that. But keeping that bigger picture in mind with some of the older systems, I know the uh, CIO Council Innovation Committee, we did this, a primer, a few years ago around the encryption and around the older systems and some of the things that needed to be done holistically across the federal government. So there's some opportunities there um, where there's challenges, there's opportunities, but also understanding the bigger game and the bigger picture, I think, is, is really important. Um, We've got about a minute left. I want to give you each a chance to whip out your magic eight balls or whatever else you're using to offer us a final prognostication for 2023. Robert, we'll go to you first, and then we'll give Maria the last word. Look, I'm I'm afraid that uh, gridlock in Congress is going to prove a major distraction for all of us. Uh, We've got uh, thin majorities in both houses. Uh, The Senate very slight majority to the Democrats, if even that, and slight majority in the House to the Republicans. It's going to be very hard to get anything done. The good news for the Biden administration is that Congress probably won't be acting in a way that really restricts their ability to implement what they've already gotten started. But I do think seeing uh, a lot of stuff other than at the margins from the Congress is uh, not going to uh, come to fruition. Maria, we've got about 30 seconds left. What's yours? Yeah, you know what? I think the the agencies need to get really creative in this current fiscal environment, right? Everything Robert said, and the agencies are just going to have to, even as they're tightening their belts, really start digging in the couch cushions for what they need to do to be able to continue to serve the government. So it's going to be tough the next couple of years, I think, but there's ways to be creative and get things done. And I think agencies are going to have to um, dip into that well to really affect change and really accomplish the mission and what they need to do. Maria Rote and Robert Shea, former government executives, current industry leaders, all around great people who I'm honored to call friends. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to wish everyone a happy new year. And if there's room on your to-do list for one more resolution, let's make it collaborating together to accelerate government mission outcomes. I'm Dave Wintergren. You've been listening to Accelerating Government brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. 
You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.